This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. We're, we're delighted to have you here tonight. We're especially delighted to have as, as our speaker, uh, Dr. Norman Ernstein. Uh, Dr. Ernstein is, is a long time and highly authoritative uh, speaker and commentator on Congress and congressional politics and politics in Washington in general. Uh, he has an extremely distinguished career. I'm happy to say he's a Midwesterner by birth, at least, um, and, and that gives us a little bit something in common. Uh, Norm is the author or co-author of, of uh, or contributor to dozens of books, several of which I think were really important in the, in the historical development of political science and, and the scholarship in the area of Congress. There's, uh, and he has teamed up with Tom Mann, who, Thomas Mann, who's a professor um, uh, at the Brookings Institution. Some of the stuff that, that Dr. Ernstein has written, um, there's a book called The Permanent Campaign and Its Future, which kind of laid the basis for a lot of work he did on campaign finance reform. And so if you're interested in that question at all, you can you certainly uh, have at him with that. He was uh, very much involved as part of the um, campaign finance reform working group that eventually led to the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform bill uh, back in 2002. Um, he's co-author of, of one of the most important books ever written, I think, on Congress. It's called Vital Statistics on Congress. If you ever want to know any factual thing about Congress, you go to that book. It's there. Uh, most recently, of course, he's been the author, co-author of, of two really interesting books. One is called The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America, and how to get it back on track. Um, it's a best-selling book. Uh, it, it's, it's well worth your reading. Uh, it, it really explores what's going on on Capitol Hill. Its sequel is called It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. Controversial book, interesting, a lot of reform suggestions, and I'm sure maybe some of you would, would like to ask him about some of those things at the end. Along the way, uh, he's had a very impressive record of, of service to the country, to the Congress, to the political science profession, and to education. He was co-director of that Renewing Congress project, uh, founder and director of the Campaign Finance Reform Working Group. Um, he has served as a counsel, senior counselor for the Continuity of uh, Government Commission, co-director on the project to examine alternatives to the independent counsel system, He's been a senior advisor to the Pew Research Center um, and, and a number of other things. Um, Norm currently writes a column for Roll Call Magazine, which is probably the definitive kibitzer on Congress. It's easily available on the web, and you can read his columns there. Uh, he's done a lot of uh, election evening broadcasting for CBS and, and recently for BBC. He's a regular contributor to the Washington Post and other newspapers, and a frequent guest on one of my favorite TV shows, the uh, PBS uh, NewsHour, which is on every evening. Uh, Norm's con uh, topic tonight, I, I think I've got this sort of right, it's uh, making public policy in a dysfunctional political system, or something like that, and I'm sure he'll be uh, more, more than delighted to, to correct me on that. With, uh, with that, I would like to introduce to you Dr. Norman Ernstein. Thanks so much, Jack. Uh, thank you all for coming. I'm uh, delighted to be back uh, here at, uh, at Villanova. 
Actually, as I approached the campus, I thought, as I always do when I come here, of the great basketball tradition, and I was thinking back to uh, that uh, quite stirring uh, Final Four. And politics and uh, uh, sports often get mixed up. At uh, the time of the Final Four, somebody came up to me and said, I'm really puzzled. Maybe you can answer this question. I would have thought that John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, would be a huge Ohio State fan. How come he's such a fan of Syracuse? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he painted his face orange. Uh, I said, no, 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 that's his natural pallor, uh, actually. Uh, thank you, Jack, for mentioning uh, the book, uh, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, uh, which, by the way, makes a great holiday gift. Uh, doesn't, doesn't matter the holiday. Uh, so Tom Mann and I wrote uh, The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America, and uh, now this one, uh, it's even worse than it looks, and we're being pushed to make it a trilogy. I'm just hoping we don't have to call the third one, Run for Your Lives. Uh, instead, I can fall back on my preferred title to make a surefire bestseller, 535 Shades of Gray. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's been a, a really uh, interesting and uh, somewhat challenging time for all of us in the uh, public world uh, of late. Of course, uh, all of the terrible things that have happened here uh, in the last week, but we're still facing a looming uh, crisis with uh, North Korea, a possibility of uh, true disaster. I'm just hoping that our new envoy, uh, Dennis Rodman, can uh, <laughs> somehow uh, get us out of this. Uh, it's been a very interesting time in terms of elections. Uh, after ours, the last uh, uh, couple of months, we've seen two pivotal elections. We had, of course, the election for Pope. Uh, now, it turns out uh, we've discovered that not every cardinal voted. Uh, it turns out the cardinal from Florida got confused by the ballot and uh, didn't cast one. Of course, we learned in the aftermath uh, that uh, the new pope had run before and had finished second. Uh, to Pope Benedict. So when I learned that, I uh, uh, sent an email to Mitt Romney saying there's still hope. Uh, uh, then we had an election in Kenya. And uh, what was interesting about the election in Kenya, which took a while to get resolved, uh, President Kenyatta, another uh, family dynasty, uh, uh, getting into office. But it turned out that President Obama's half-brother actually ran to be a governor uh, in one of the uh, provinces in Kenya. Uh, Donald Trump accused him of being born in the United States, uh, <laughs> as it turned out. Uh, in New York, uh, I keep looking for green shoots out there, signs that things are different. At least we have one heartening example of uh, bipartisanship. Uh, we had a, a guy, a Democrat, uh, who wanted to be uh, on the Republican ballot as mayor, uh, and tried to bribe his way onto the ballot. Uh, the scandal involves three Republicans and two Democrats who have now been indicted, so we have at least one example of bipartisanship uh, out there. Uh, as I was coming up, I was also thinking back on the arc of uh, the last year and uh, uh, the last two years, really, and how we got to this point in President Obama's uh, re-election, uh, thinking back uh, to some of the pivotal moments, Tampa, um, where we had the Republican convention, and of course it was dominated by the weather. Uh, we had Hurricane Isaac uh, looming. Uh, it was uh, really quite tense being down there. I think my favorite moment, though, was when Herman Cain 
was interviewed by a reporter about the weather and he was asked if he remembered Katrina and he said, I don't know her, I've never met her, there's no proof. I did think there was a little bit of overreaction when I saw Rick Santorum at the Tampa Zoo gathering up two of every creature, <laughs> maybe pushing it a little bit too far. Uh, from there I went to uh, uh, Charlotte, uh, the Democratic Convention. Uh, the highlight there for me was I like to you know, pick up campaign buttons at these uh, uh, conventions. You always get these really interesting ones and a vendor out on the street had this button, big button with a big picture of Jenna Jameson on it. Now I know nobody here knows who Jenna Jameson is, well Jack does. Uh, uh, she is uh, the most successful porn star in America and she endorsed Mitt Romney uh, saying, I'm rich so I'm going to vote for Mitt Romney. So it was a big button that said porn stars for Romney and I looked at it and I thought the Democrats are losing the porn star vote. This never would have happened under Bill Clinton. Uh, so. Of course, a drama along the way was the choice of a running mate for Romney. We always focus a lot of attention there. And I must confess, as a part-time pundit, uh, we all make our mistakes and I got that one completely wrong. I was confident that Romney would choose uh, Newt Gingrich. I thought, you know, presidential candidate, you want a balanced ticket. You want the perfect balanced ticket. You got a Mormon and a polygamist. What could be more balanced than that? But I got that one wrong. Anyhow, I like to get you laughing because it's all downhill uh, from, uh, from this point on. So what I'm going to do is step back a little bit and reflect and talk a bit about the, the thesis of this uh, book and how we came to this conclusion and uh, then look forward to uh, where we are likely to be headed and what we might do about all of this uh, along the way, reflect on some of the reasons uh, for how we got here. Tom Mann, my co-author, and I have now been in Washington for uh, about 43 and a half years. Uh, we came as congressional fellows in uh, 1969 and we've been immersed in uh, our uh, politics and policymaking process from both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue and in between uh, for all that time. And flatly, we have never seen it this dysfunctional. Now, we've seen plenty of periods of dysfunction. Uh, when we first arrived, the country and even more uh, the capital city were just riven by the bitter, intense conflict over America's participation in the Vietnam War. Um, actually, just as an aside, uh, when I got to Washington, it was uh, the early fall of 1969 and a few of us shared a townhouse near DuPont Circle in the middle of the city. One of my roommates had a dog. Uh, it was a balmy uh, uh, September evening. I took the dog out for a walk and we started to walk towards DuPont Circle and after about a half a block he started to tug back against the leash and was kind of yelping and I tugged him along a little bit further and he got more intense and I wondered what was going on and then I realized uh, as a tear gas canister began rolling towards us his olfactory senses were uh, much more acute than my own and several more tear gas canisters followed by a crowd of people moving towards us uh, uh, with uh, great rapidity and behind them police in full riot gear. A demonstration at the South Vietnamese Embassy on the other side of DuPont Circle had gone awry and uh, the dog and I went coughing and choking back to the house 
went inside, closed the doors, put wet towels uh, under the door frames, and watched as mayhem ensued for the next hour or so, and one of my roommates said, welcome to Washington. That was a difficult and tense time, and of course it was followed not long thereafter by the impeachment of a president. And for those of you who weren't around at that time or involved in that process, it's hard to imagine now how tense it was. We really weren't sure. We hadn't been through this. The country hadn't been through it since Andrew Johnson. We didn't know if, if the system could survive. There could be a coup. It could all fall apart. Uh, of course, uh, the fact is we got through those experiences uh, in what wasn't necessarily a smooth fashion, but a durable fashion. The Vietnam War, for all of the divisions that it caused, uh, was not a partisan conflict. The strongest supporters of the Republican President Richard Nixon and what we were doing in Vietnam were probably the Southern Democrats, the conservative Democrats who were a core part, 40% or more of the Democratic Party in Congress, who dominated the power positions on committees like armed services and appropriations, and who were staunch supporters of the president, as much or more than many of his Republicans. And the fact is, the strongest opponents, most emotional opponents of President uh, Nixon and uh, his uh, Vietnam uh, policies, uh, along with the George McGoverns of the world, uh, were moderate and liberal Republicans. We used to call those Southern conservative Democrats bull weevils for that uh, insect that infects cotton in the South. Uh, we called the moderate and liberal Republicans, who made up maybe 25 or 30 percent of the Republican Party in Congress, gypsy moths for that bug that infects hardwood trees in this part of the region and up into New England. Uh, as a general matter, uh, the two parties had broad tents, and most of the members of Congress were congregated close enough towards the middle that you saw a lot of admixture between the two and most issues involved uh, coalitions that cut across party lines. It was true, of course, of the civil rights issues uh, that preceded these ones. The impeachment of Richard Nixon for all the tension that was caused, we managed to get through it as a society that was even stronger because in the end, after what was a pretty deliberative process, leaders in both parties came together and realized that this crossed a threshold and a strong group of Republican leaders went to the White House and said to Richard Nixon, go now or it will get much worse. Of course, ironically, uh, the way we got through that process made it much easier to impeach another president uh, a couple of decades later. Uh, but uh, even that, uh, for all of the difficulty and trauma that it caused, was different from what we have now. Now, what makes it worse? and what makes it worse than it looks. Just a couple of things there. The first and most important is we have a level of partisan and ideological polarization now that we simply haven't seen in our political process in at least a century. And that's true whether you look at it in an anecdotal way from people who are immersed in the process or you look at it more systematically with the data that have been provided by other political scientists where we can look at ideology and behavior going back even to the first Congress. Now, it's not just that we have polarization. Polarization doesn't mean that you can't function in a political process, that you can't make decisions. You can have very different worldviews, very different policy preferences, 
And if your goal is to solve problems and find a way to come together, you can find ways across many issues, not necessarily everything, to bridge the gap. Some of those might involve common ground, because lots of issues are not naturally ideological in nature. There's no reason, for example, why doing conservation of energy uh, is a liberal idea or a conservative idea. Uh, or you can compromise, meaning you give up a little something in return for getting something. And you can do that not necessarily by picking the worst elements and pulling them together, but sometimes by picking the best elements. And that's a core part of our political system. The problem that we see now is more tribalism. This is not just ideological polarization or partisan divisions. It's tribalism, and what I mean by that, what makes it different, is it's not just you've got one worldview and I've got another worldview. It's if you're for it, I'm against it, even if I was for it yesterday. And we offer a number of examples, and to me, still the best example of this uh, and why you can necessarily have outcomes that can work even with uh, different worldviews is in this core area that we've been grappling with for so long, uh, which is dealing with uh, the impending longer-term and medium-term problems we have with the accumulation of debt. Uh, now, this is not new, but if you think about uh, where we are and what we could do about it, and even looking back a couple of years, uh, every time we've pulled together a group to try and come up with a way of resolving these issues, we've done this through outside uh, uh, groups that span the political spectrum, like the Simpson-Bowles Commission uh, that uh, was created by executive order, the Rivlin-Domenici Commission, named for Alice Rivlin, a former uh, 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 head of the Congressional uh, Budget Office and former deputy chair of the Fed, uh, and uh, Pete Domenici, the former Republican senator and longtime chairman of the Budget Committee, that deliberately picked members that cut across all the lines, or the inside Senate gang of six that went from Tom Coburn, who proudly calls himself still the most conservative member of the Senate. And a year ago, you would have said he's got pretty strong reason for grabbing that title with Ted Cruz uh, now uh, and Mike Lee. He's probably a bronze medalist. Uh, but all the way over to Dick Durbin, who's a very proud progressive, they all came up with the same template. You resolve the debt limit by reducing the growth of debt by roughly $4 trillion over 10 years that will stabilize the debt to GDP ratio, the gross domestic product, at a level where it can be sustained until you can begin to bring it down even further. And you've got to do it in a balanced way. Every group said somewhere between a quarter to a third of that has to come from revenues because our revenues have been at the lowest level in 60 years as a percentage of the economy at roughly 15, 15.5%. Uh, and then you've got to deal with the big spending items, which include uh, the biggest ones, uh, combined Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, but you also have to deal with defense and you have to deal with the discretionary domestic component and you can argue over how you do some of those things, 
but you can find that template. Put it inside and it doesn't work very well. And so here's the example. 2009 we had a commendable exercise in bipartisanship in an attempt to deal with this. Conservative Republican Senator Judd Gregg of New Hampshire joined with moderate Democrat Kent Conrad of North Dakota and they introduced a resolution to create a congressionally mandated commission with real teeth and with the imprimatur of a law uh, being established, signed by the President, uh, that would have real power to, by a simple majority, come up with a debt reduction plan and get expedited up or down votes in both houses. And from the moment that was introduced, there was not a day that went by when Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, didn't take to the Senate floor or give a speech or go on a television or radio program and say, we can solve this problem. If only we enacted the Greg Conrad Commission, we could work together, we could make this happen. We need the Greg Conrad Commission. If only the President would support the Greg Conrad Commission. And that went on every day through 2009 and into 2010. And then Barack Obama endorsed the Greg Conrad Commission. Now a short while later, it came up for a vote in the Senate. Got 53 senators supporting it. But it was filibustered. And it fell seven votes short of being enacted. Seven original Republican co-sponsors of the Greg Conrad Commission and Mitch McConnell voted against the plan. Now, I've searched long and hard for an explanation other than if he's for it, we're against it, even though we were for it yesterday. And if somebody can find me one, I'll be very grateful. Uh, but so far, no. And it got reinforced a short while later when the Gang of Six, that group of intrepid senators, uh, who broke the mold in trying to come up with a balanced package, issued their own template. And the day it came out, Barack Obama said very warm things about it. Mike Allen, a reporter with Politico, immediately got an email from a senior staff, staffer to the Republican Senate leader saying, well, that kills that. If he's for it, we're against it. That's tribalism in nature, and it's different from what we've seen before. Contentiousness is built into the political process. And our political process, like any political process, is messy and painful and difficult. The old saw that you don't want to watch laws or sausages being made has real resonance out there. Uh, it's not made to look good. And ours is designed in a very different fashion from a lot of others, particularly different from a parliamentary system. What Tom and I have seen is that our parties now have been acting much like parliamentary parties. Now, parliamentary parties are uh, homogeneous in nature, unified in character, oppositional, uh, often intensely oppositional, uh, in operation. Uh, in a parliamentary system, that works generally just fine. Uh, a parliamentary system, you have an election and a government comes in. 
The government has the capacity to create a program and to act on it. The parliament puts that program through without change. The minority does everything in its power to oppose, but can't prevail. And voters accept the legitimacy of the actions that have been taken, even if they don't like them. And they're comforted by the knowledge that in a few years, three, four, or five, they're going to have an opportunity to judge them. And either uh, say, okay, that's good, we want to keep you, or you're out and the minority comes in. Now that's not a system that necessarily makes better policy or makes good policy. And we have some pretty damn good examples of the failures of parliamentary systems in the disastrous economic policies that have been pursued in the last uh, few years in the aftermath of a financial crisis. But it has a cleanness to it that ours doesn't. And our framers very deliberately decided to move in a different way. They looked at the British experience and in part because Britain was a small and homogeneous territory and ours wasn't. Ours was this vast area that they called an extended republic and what they wanted to create with very different people having very different backgrounds and experiences. How do you in that extended republic accomplish the fundamental goal <coughs> that every government has to accomplish which is a, an, uh, involves an enormous tension in fundamental human nature. What you have to do as a government is make policy that is going to impose a certain level of short-term pain on people and dislocation. You're going to change things for them. And it's clear it's going to be there for the promise, an ephemeral promise, that there will be some long-term advantage. Indeed, it may even be so long-term that you won't see it, but it'll be there for your children or grandchildren. Now, as a general matter, human beings do not like to accept the certainty of something bad for the promise of something good. Actually, a few months ago on a Sunday evening, I was reflecting on this larger problem uh, as I was preparing for my colonoscopy uh, the next morning. Now, a few of you in the room have been through this process, and it is a very unpleasant one. Uh, you drink an awful and vile liquid all evening long with uh, outcomes that are not uh, ways you'd want to spend your evening. And I kept asking myself, why am I doing this? But of course, the answer is, I was accepting what I knew was going to come, this awful thing, because the scientific community and the weight of the scientific community, along with my own trusted gastroenterologist, convinced me that it was not going to be just good for me, but for the rest of my family if I went through this pain. People will generally accept the weight of scientific community or a trusted physician. Politicians? We don't accept that. And if you're dealing with a country in this vast area with people, some of whom are in rural areas so remote that they literally wouldn't see other human beings for months, all the way across to densely packed urban areas, the Philadelphia of that time makes this one look as if it were all Central Park. Uh, how do you get them to accept the legitimacy of decisions made in a political process? And the answer was a very different one than a parliamentary one. You create a Congress. Now, it's not just a different word than parliament. 
Parliament comes from the French parler, to speak. The Parliament basically is a vessel. The government acts, it just works its way through the Parliament. Congress comes from the Latin word meaning to come together. And the idea was you're going to take people across this vast extended republic, have their representatives come together, meeting face to face, debating and deliberating over a substantial period of time to a point where first you may put yourself in other shoes. And what initially seems to you to be a bizarre or alien or really stupid set of ideas, you come to realize why people from very different places might have those points of view. And over a time where you debate and deliberate, maybe you can find that common ground and create at least some level of consensus in your elites across the mass that will convince all of these different kinds of people that there's legitimacy in those decisions. And if you can't convince everybody, the losers at least will come away from it saying, you know, I had ample opportunity to get my message across and to stick with those decisions. Now that, as we have seen and as we know, is a difficult and messy process. Nowhere is it described better or seen better than in Steven Spielberg's film Lincoln, which for any student of history or student of Congress was just wonderful to watch because you can see how noble ends get pursued through a political process with often ignoble means, but also over a period of time where you can try and come up with the reasons for doing what you're doing. So what happens when you get a mismatch between your political parties and political system and the fundamentals of that political system that you have? When you have parliamentary parties, and these parties are just very different than the ones that were there when I first came to Washington. To express it in a simple fashion, when I was teaching about Congress some years ago and I tried to express uh, in a simple way the uh, uh, ideological divisions, I would say to my students, imagine if we took all the members of Congress, put them on buses, and drove them due east of the Capitol, about a mile and a half to what used to be our football stadium, RFK Stadium, and said, go down on that field and place yourselves where your worldview, your general orientation would make you feel most comfortable. And we went up to the press box and looked down. We would have seen a visual representation of the uh, normal curve, uh, a, a bell curve, a normal distribution. The vast majority of the members congregated near the midfield stripe, tailing off to a smaller number towards the ends, and a really large amount of admixture between the two. Well, over the decades since then, the parties, for a variety of reasons, including dramatic regional changes in American government and politics, the South, the Northeast and New England, and the West Coast, <coughs> have been altered dramatically. They've become more homogeneous and moved in a different direction, but as I will indicate in a minute, not uh, uniformly so. But if we took the 113th Congress, the current one, first repainting the football lines on the now defunct RFK Stadium, took them down there with the same instructions, from the press box we would look down and see a barren midfield area. Then you'd look over on one side where the Democrats were uh, in their blue shirts and you would see a significant number around the 35-yard line and quite a lot around the 25, 
tailing down to a small number a little bit further down. On the Republican side, you'd see a whole lot around the 10-yard line, even more behind the goalpost, and not a few floating in the Anacostia River uh, nearby. The parties have polarized, but it has not been uh, uh, in an equivalent fashion. The Republican Party has moved dramatically to the right, while the Democrats have moved some to the left. But the fact is, both have behaved to some degree in a parliamentary fashion. But in our political system, it doesn't work. Now, it doesn't work very well under any set of circumstances. Of course, we can still have the equivalent of parliamentary government if one party wins the presidency, the House, and the Senate simultaneously. It's the equivalent of having all the reins of power. But there are two problems in the world now. One is a culture which says having a majority isn't enough. You need 60 votes out of 100 in the Senate, which makes it much, much harder for a government to enact a program. But the second and even more important is that when you can act, when you can get those 60 votes, when you can make it work by keeping your party disciplined and together as Barack Obama did with his Democrats in the first two years of the Obama administration. We don't have a parliamentary style culture. Our system was set up so that through debate and deliberation you could build some broad leadership consensus when you made significant changes in policy, especially social policy. And if instead you behave in a parliamentary way where one party acts in unison to pass something and the other party unites to bitterly, vociferously oppose, we end up with half the political process viewing those outcomes as illegitimate and with half the political process dedicated to further delegitimizing them even after they've been enacted into law and keep them from being implemented. And that is not a healthy way to operate. And of course, you can also end up with the true nightmare of parliamentary parties in a non-parliamentary system, which is divided government with a parliamentary-style minority party that has the ability, if united, to block anything from happening. And if you look at our policy process over the first Obama term, there is a dramatic difference in outputs between the first two years and the second two years. The first two years, which were remarkably contentious, nonetheless had a spate of legislative activity and policies enacted into law that made it uh, the closest equivalent in our adult lifetimes to that famous 89th Great Society Congress in which Lyndon Johnson and Democrats enacted an enormous array of legislative accomplishments from Medicare uh, to higher education. And we got first a stimulus package, which if you read another very good book by journalist Michael Grunwald called The New New Deal, wasn't just a stimulus package, but rather if you parse it out into the individual policy components from health information technology to the dramatic expansion of broadband to the work on the electrical grid and in alternative energies was actually a huge package of uh, significant accomplishments. All the way through to the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare plan as it were, the Dodd-Frank financial uh, legislation, the Lilly Ledbetter Act, the credit card reform bill, and on and on was itself quite remarkable. 
But then we went to the 112th Congress, which had the lowest level of outputs, uh, was as close to gridlock as we have seen uh, in uh, more than 60 years. It was the definitive do-nothing Congress. Now, the term do-nothing Congress, as many of you know, uh, was actually a famous one coined by Harry Truman when he ran his stunning and successful uh, come-from-behind campaign uh, to win the election of 1948, largely by running against what he called the do-nothing Republican 80th Congress. It worked, but the great irony was the do-nothing 80th Congress was a very productive Congress. And among its accomplishments was the Marshall Plan. Now, any Congress could come in and pass one bill. If it's the Marshall Plan, one of the half dozen most significant uh, achievements perhaps of the 20th century, and be historic in nature. So the numbers of bills that you pass alone doesn't mean a whole lot. It's the quality. But for the 112th Congress, where a third of the tiny number of bills that were passed were commemoratives, naming post offices or things of that sort, the closest equivalent we have in impact of the Marshall Plan was uh, the debacle that led uh, to the first downgrade of credit in the United States history uh, as the debt limit was held uh, hostage to a set of non-negotiable demands. Uh, that's not a healthy way to act. And we went through those first two years and all of those accomplishments have continued to be under enormous siege with uh, efforts in Washington and around in the states to keep the Affordable Care Act from being implemented and to keep the Dodd-Frank financial legislation uh, from uh, being deployed. And that included, and it continues to include in the Senate, uh, an unprecedented blockage by the minority party uh, of the nominations for the key posts to implement those plans. Uh, for the Affordable Care Act, it's the head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services called CMS, which is the key official. And for Dodd-Frank, uh, it's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now this isn't just saying, we don't like this person, this person is extreme, this person is not qualified, this person has issues of moral turpitude. This was a very open, we don't care who's nominated, these are people with sterling qualifications they're absolutely wonderful. We're just not going to choose anybody. We're going to use the filibuster to block anybody from coming in. Tom and I call that the new nullification, and it is a very different way of operating. And it undermines the whole notion of a legitimacy of a system enacting bills into law and then a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the laws are themselves faithfully implemented. Now, much of this was a strategy, a very open strategy in many ways, although it was not reported as such, by leaders of the Republican Party to make sure that the four years of the Obama administration were so miserable that voters would react against them and in the backlash would enable the minority party to take the reins of power and do what it wanted to do. It worked like a charm in the 2010 midterm elections. It wasn't the first time that this had been tried. And this is not all new to the Obama administration. 
Much of it flowed from what happened to the Clinton administration, but where in Clinton's first two years, he couldn't get his Democratic Party to act in a unified fashion as a parliamentary majority party. And so failures, seven months to enact his uh, economic plan, the complete inability to enact his health care plan, led to the enormous backlash that made Newt Gingrich speaker and brought the Republicans into the majority for the first time in 40 years. But it worked in some ways in an even better and more dramatic fashion in 2010, despite all of those legislative accomplishments. And we saw it double down as we headed towards 2012. Now again, don't take my word for it. Just a few weeks ago, we had uh, a very interesting profile of Eric Cantor, the House Majority Leader, done in the New Yorker by Ryan Lizza, who's one of our better reporters. And in it, uh, where Ryan asked uh, uh, Cantor about why the grand bargain that might have gotten us out of the debt limit debacle uh, with a real path towards fiscal stability uh, in a deal that was discussed between Speaker Boehner and President Obama had fallen apart. There are many who interpret that as being the President pulling back from a deal, uh, Bob Woodward among them. But here we have Eric Cantor himself saying, well, it's plausible enough to say that I killed that plan and I went to the Speaker and said, why should we cut a deal with this guy? He may benefit from it. Let's not do the deal, take it to the election, and then we won't have to compromise with anybody if we win. Now that strategy obviously failed. It failed in the 2012 elections. And we've come back thinking, will things be different now? Now that we've seen an election which was viewed as a referendum on those policies and a referendum on the parties come out in a fashion that didn't work the way that Eric Cantor hoped it would, will we move to a different arena? And there are some reasons to believe, and there are some reasons to believe, that maybe things will be a little bit different now. The permanent campaign that Jack talked about, the fact that, especially since Newt won that dramatic election in 1994, brought his party, which had been in the minority for 40 straight years in the House of Representatives, through that 40 years of wandering in the desert of the minority to the promised land of the majority with him as Speaker. But that took us into an era which continues of extremely close partisan competition where Every election could result in a change in majority. You can make a plausible case. And the consequences are not moving from one 40-yard line to the other, but from one end to the other. Uh, that's changed the nature uh, of uh, our politics. And nowhere was it better expressed over the uh, Obama administration than in the frequently repeated uh, phrase of Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, my number one goal is to make Barack Obama a one-term president. Now, of course, partisans want to win, and they want the other side to lose. That's a natural feature of democracy. It was stunning when I first heard Mitch say this, and I thought, well, surely he misspoke, or they misquoted him. He must have said, my number one goal is to create more jobs in America, to have a better economy, to get the educational system working, to thwart terrorists, and to achieve that goal, 
it would be best to have Barack Obama have a one-term president. But he ignored all that verbiage. He went straight uh, to the heart of what he wanted, and that is the definition of the permanent campaign. But that goal failed. And so as we move towards the inaugural of President Obama's second term, I thought, well, okay, McConnell now can't say my number one goal is to have Barack Obama be a two-term president. Mission accomplished. Uh, and with the term limits in place, now's the time to move towards uh, perhaps a different kind of policymaking. And in the Senate, we have seen some signs of that. We've seen these, call them green shoots, emerge with the immigration issue. We've seen at least some efforts now, for the moment, perhaps for a longer period, thwarted on the gun issue. The president has had two dinners in the last month with each, uh, with a dozen Republican senators, different senators. And commendably, he picked up the tab uh, for both. It's another big spending Democrat, uh, I guess. Uh, and just the other day, I had, uh, uh, just yesterday, I had uh, breakfast with one of them, uh, Bob Corker of Tennessee, and he said, uh, I'm really optimistic after that dinner. We can do some business here on the fiscal front. We're, we can do some revenues in return for some changes uh, in uh, Social Security and Medicare. And he's not alone on that front. There are opportunities, perhaps, uh, in the Senate. But the fundamental reality is the problems that have led us to this level of dysfunction in a system that never looks good, but now, for all the reasons I've suggested, is even worse than it looks, were not erased by one election. They're not erased by the fact that a gamble to make Obama a one-term president failed, and now it's time to move on. They're deeper-seated. Many of them are cultural in nature. The tribalism is more cultural. When you live in a political culture that is magnified by a campaign money system that is utterly careened out of control in the aftermath of Citizens United, its progeny, and the failures of other institutions like the Federal Election Commission or the IRS to put some limits back. When you live in a political world where lying in the larger society which used to be a terrible thing, and if you got caught, you were ashamed and you suffered for it. Now, if you get caught in a public lie, you double down on it. And the lesson you learn is if you do that and you're brazen enough about it, you can get your own cable television show. Or you can be a talk radio host, or you might even become a presidential candidate. Uh, and in a world where grabbing people's attention with the new technologies leading to this cacophony of voices, millions of outlets, requires more extreme views to be represented. It's very hard to move beyond it. In a world where a small number of political actors who tend to veer towards the extremes dominate the candidate's selection process, and where talk radio hosts and cable television outlets and social media can drag the parties further apart because that's what the business models demand. A tribal media that's not new in American history or culture. We had it in the 18th century and indeed some of the things said back then make charges today look fairly mild by comparison. 
We had it even more in the 19th century with William Randolph Hearst and partisan newspapers. But the depth and breadth and scope and immediacy of today's media and the amplification by social media and emails takes it to a completely different level. And there is nothing in the business models of Rush Limbaugh or Fox News or others in that area that would suggest to them that if they become more temperate or become more moderate, they can still pull in the money that they're pulling in or the viewers or listeners that they have. In fact, the opposite is true. If tomorrow Rush Limbaugh said, can't we all just get along? I mean, I've been thinking about this and it's just we've just been really stupid and wrong. Barack Obama may not be the president I want and there are a lot of things I disagree with him on, but he's a good man. He's trying really hard. We can find common ground. 20 million people would immediately turn the radio dial to go to Laura Ingram or Mark Levin or somebody else who would tell them what they were there to hear. And if Roger Ailes did the same thing with Fox News, within a week, some other cable outlet, probably calling itself Wolf News, would emerge to take the same old message. So we're pulled apart in different ways that make it much more difficult. And while we have in the Senate now a group of people across party lines who are more problem solvers, it's the loss of the problem solving caucus that has been at the root of what we're doing, than we had before. And there are some opportunities there. Opportunities, by the way, that will not be led by Mitch McConnell or his number two, John Cornyn, both of whom are up for re-election this time and have to go through a primary process that is pulling them even further away from consensus. But at least they're being more passive actors, letting uh, their other colleagues work together in different gangs of six or gang, uh, gangs of eight or otherwise. The House of Representatives has, if anything, grown more polarized as Democrats have moved a little bit further left losing many of their moderate blue dog uh, contingent and Republicans have, hard as it is even to imagine, moved more sharply uh, to the right, creating headaches for leaders like John Boehner uh, in any attempt to try and find either common ground or solutions to problems or an ability to enact things into law. Nothing, to be perfectly uh, candid, uh, that could pass the Senate and get the approval of the President can make it through the House uh, without relying on far more Democrats supporting it than Republicans. And if you're the Speaker of the House and you're a Republican, there are only so many times you can do that without jeopardizing your own position. So we have a continuing set of problems navigating our way through this. Uh, in creating something close to the vision of what the framers uh, wanted and had in mind. And at the same time, we know that we live in a world with enormous challenges. Some of those challenges that become even more troubling occur because while for most of our history it wasn't the case that uh, in the phrase of Arthur Vandenberg, a longtime Republican senator, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, politics stops at the water's edge. There was a period when we faced significant threats from abroad where we were able to build consensus on America's actions in the world or role in the world 
And certainly nobody would go abroad and trash the government of the United States, who was a part of the political process, to a very different world where there is absolutely no difference in the tribal warfare between foreign and domestic policies. And nowhere could you see this more apparent uh, than in the uh, horrible incident at the Boston Marathon, which may or may not have been related to terrorism. But unlike 9-11, when at the time we weren't sure where this was coming from, but the day after we had all 535 members of Congress congregate on the steps of the Capitol together to sing God Bless America and say we're all united and together on this, we didn't have anything like that in the aftermath of this. And we had lots of members of Congress within a very short period of time trying to gain some political advantage from it. It's a different world we live in. Uh, and at the same time, if you think about not just the fiscal challenges, and we have far more significant questions about what role we're going to play in the world, how we're going to be able to compete in the global economy, how we can deal with a workforce that is changing dramatically and where the challenge is finding jobs for people at all levels, including some of the more sophisticated uh, levels only scratching the surface of some of the difficult challenges that we have. As we move to implement a health care plan, knowing that we've got terrible problems, including the problems that emerge with the changing demographics as people are living longer uh, and we have an aging population, just to pick one little twist on this, if you decide you're going to solve one part of the fiscal problem by what's called chain CPI, altering the cost of living adjustment in programs that uh, affect many categories, but including the elderly, which means, in effect, you're going to start to reduce what's available to people as they get older. We know that we're going to have an increasing number of cases with the baby boom generation aging of dementia, where people are going to require much more long-term care as they get older. That would suggest that what you ought to be doing is backloading the uh, amount available to seniors as they get older where they're going to need it more. But we're not putting those pieces together. Now it's tough in any political system to put two different policy areas and figure out how you can keep contradictions from taking place. In a tribal era, there is zero chance of being able to accomplish those goals and especially if cutting spending takes precedence over solving problems but in a way where the cutting of spending in the short run can actually be counterproductive because it will lead to greater burdens and more spending later on. So it's a major challenge for all of us and a challenge that will require some attention to changing some of the structures of government, difficult as that is to do, but also a recognition that simply changing the structures isn't enough. We have a bigger cultural problem. And we're going to have to figure out ways before a set of problems that began in Washington have metastasized to way too many states where the polarization in some cases is even more bitter and deeper and where policies enacted in many cases are even more extreme and is starting to morph even more uh, to the public as a whole. If we can't do this before we lose that broad center in American public opinion, uh, then it may take much, much longer to come out of this. I'll end just by saying this isn't the first time in American history that we've had these challenges. 
It was kind of amusing to me. Before uh, this book emerged, I wrote a piece in the Foreign Policy magazine uh, on the previous Congress, uh, and uh, the editors titled it Worst Period, Congress Period, Ever Period. And it got a lot of attention, and I had a lot of people coming up to me and saying, oh, come on, that's not the worst Congress ever. What about the period right before the Civil War? And I would say, well, you're right. Isn't it comforting to be compared to the period right before the Civil War? And we had great challenges in the 1890s when it was a Democratic Party that veered off the rails to the left. And it took a decade or more to bring them back to the center, the loss of a few elections. I'm not sure we have a decade or more, but it may take that long. It's heartening that we're getting some real discussion now, especially in a Republican Party that has veered off the rails about where it's going to go and whether it can compete. And that's why the immigration issue, which was completely off the table a year ago, and we've been discussing it then, we would have said, I would have said zero chance of taking it up, is now not just on the table, but has a serious chance of being, at least for now, resolved in a fashion that will move the country forward and begin to grapple with long-standing tensions and problems in the society. But that's just scratching the surface of some of the dysfunction that we have to deal with. Now, I do want to end on an upbeat note. The book is selling really, really well. <laughs> and with uh, that, I'll uh, stop, and I'm very happy to take uh, questions or uh, comments. <laughs> um, so the gun reform bill wasn't passed in the Senate or in a pause. Is that related to your idea of tribalism or is there some other kind of strategy at play there? Uh, certainly that's part of it. Um, of course, the American people uh, have made their position on uh, uh, background checks very clear. And the Senate responded. 54 of the 100 supported it. But it tells you an awful lot about the culture now, which is different from previous periods of American history. That every amendment, every vote, had to pass a 60-vote hurdle. That's different. Uh, now, it's true that you've got a lot of different complications here. One part of it is it's sort of classic in public opinion. If you look at broader opinion and then focus on intensity, almost always intensity trumps. An intense minority that will go to the barricades on an issue will beat a large majority where it's one of 50 issues or one of 10 issues or something where they feel strongly about it, but next week something else will emerge. Uh, the NBA playoffs will take place and they'll be distracted or whatever whatever it might be. So that's certainly uh, a part of it. A part of it is the new world in our political culture where primaries become more and more important. Some, in some cases they become important because for the vast majority of members of the House it's the only elections that matter. And in the Senate where at this point the majority's up for grabs even though Democrats have a fairly comfortable majority it's out there and you've got a lot of people who feel vulnerable and they feel at least as vulnerable in primaries as they will anywhere else. Uh, and a part of it is the great divisions and the tribalism between the parties. For Democrats, 
broke with all the others to vote against uh, the background check, uh, the Toomey Mansion plan, which after all was a bipartisan plan. But only four Republicans supported it. So there was a sharp partisan divide here. And what's interesting here too as well is 10 years ago, background checks were almost universally supported, including by the NRA. 20 years ago, Ronald Reagan was out there saying, who needs an assault weapon if you're hunting or doing uh, recreational shooting? The dramatic changes in ideology where a Ronald Reagan, as Jeb Bush, not exactly a Republican in name only, said during the last campaign, could not win. Ronald Reagan couldn't win a Republican nomination for president now. Tells you something about how we've polarized. Now, there are other reasons, of course, uh, why the gun issue has bedeviled us for a very long period of time uh, and will continue to. But I believe that if we didn't have this kind of tribal uh, level uh, of uh, division, that it would have been pretty easy to get 60 votes for a stripped-down bill that only looked at background checks and uh, gun trafficking. Uh, and now uh, it's, uh, I've seen at least a couple of commentaries, including comments by some members of Congress saying, why should we give this guy a victory? And it tells you an awful lot about our politics now that observers and actors don't say, well, shouldn't we solve a problem? Instead, it's all about are we going to give the president a victory or not? And if you frame things in those terms, given the permanent campaign and the polarization, then simple uh, problem solving where you could easily build a consensus or solving problems in an area where 90% of Americans agree wouldn't be quite the same hurdle. Yes? Do Republicans hurt Kantner, Kantner and Mitch McConnell hate Obama because he's an African-American? I, I don't think that Eric Cantor or Mitch McConnell hate Barack Obama because he's an African-American. And I'm not sure that they hate Obama uh, per se although an awful lot of people do. And you can't help but think about race in this context. Uh, and it's never far from uh, uh, you know, concerns in the country as a whole. Uh, I have to say first, though, that if you go back and look at the things that were written and said about Bill Clinton when he became president, uh, including the Wall Street Journal was running editorials saying that Clinton, as governor of Arkansas, had in effect been an accessory to murder uh, with a drug deal that had gone back uh, somewhere in, uh, in uh, rural Arkansas. Uh, it's fairly clear that the effort to demonize and delegitimize a president uh, preceded Barack Obama. It's part of this larger culture and uh, the permanent campaign in what is a very corrosive uh, uh, larger culture. But race is there, and it's certainly a part of it. And one of the things that I, you know, I, I must say, being at the inaugural this time was in some ways more emotional than the first time. It's one thing if you elect an African-American president just because a bunch of things come together and it happens when you re-elect an African-American president. That says even more about a society. But one of the things I thought about as I was at the first inaugural was, you know, there's going to be a downside to this. 
And the downside is you're going to have an awful lot of people who say, okay, now they can't accuse us of racism anymore. Now it's open season. We can do and say what we want. We can always say, hey, we elected the guy. So some of that is clearly there and underlying it. I don't see it. I see it with some members of Congress, but I don't see it with the leaders. I think it's much more a very cold, pragmatic look at how you can achieve your goals. And demonizing the guy is a part of it. Now, what's also kind of interesting, and it's also a reflection of the tribal media and what people listen to and hear and talk about, when o Obama did the first dinner with 12 Republican senators, uh, he had long been on record in multiple places. In, uh, he'd said it uh, on national television and other ways that chain CPI was something that he would very much consider and he would do in return for a larger deal. When he sat down at this dinner at the Jefferson Hotel and raised it, half the people there said, well, I didn't know that. Why haven't you said that before? To live in a world where senators who are deeply involved in this process, because their colleagues don't tell them, they don't read stuff that would tell them that, what they read says over and over again, he won't budge on any of this. Uh, it also tells you something about the nature of uh, the, the, uh, the culture uh, right now. And uh, that's uh, a whole... This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.